0: From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched, and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young, and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Hi, welcome to episode 10 of The Body Myth. Today, I'm going to cover some of the answers to one of my favorite questions on the survey I conducted in preparation for this podcast, which in my mind gets to the heart of why so many women in the U.S. put themselves through what they do to achieve a certain size and shape. So this question is number 12, and it is, if you have ever wanted to lose weight, what did you want that weighing less would get you? And here are some of the answers to that. Lack of criticism. I wanted to look better in the clothes that were, quote, in. The skinny jeans look has always been a challenge for me to pull off. Comfortable, confidence in groups. Not respect so much as this idea that I would no longer be or feel invisible. I thought I'd stop hating my body. Self-esteem and confidence. And attention. Desirability. Self-esteem. Look better in my clothes. Feeling better physically. And more healthy emotionally. To look better, more attractive. Feel more comfortable in my own skin prettier clothes and acceptance, less judgment from others, to feel attractive, a boyfriend when I was younger, cuter clothes, boys, look better in my clothes. I wanted to be happy with my body and not disgusted with it, which is how I felt when I was about 20 to 30 pounds more than my body should weigh, given my frame and genetics. I wanted to feel more comfortable in my body. I wanted to be able to do things that were becoming difficult due to carrying extra weight. I wanted my nice clothes to fit me again, even though they weren't terribly fabulous to begin with. I felt a loss of sense of self when nothing fit, and I saw a bloated and unhappy person in the mirror. A feeling of getting my old self back. Social status, more clothing options. Acceptance, admiration, envy happiness. It would make me feel more attractive, but honestly, the biggest thing was hope that I wouldn't hear any more negative comments from other people about my body. A feeling of lightness and freedom. Looking more attractive and being happier. More sex, more clothing options, more social acceptance, more enjoyment of myself. Good health. Being comfortable, fitting my clothes, Feeling beautiful and fit. Attention from boys, men, women who were not interested. A better job prospect. Sex from my now ex-husband. Better health. Feeling good in my own skin. Greater physical ease at my job. Health. A thin aesthetic. Happier. Free. Acceptance from myself feel better in my clothes, but now I realize that I am trying to change my body's shape impossible. This survey seems to assume weight loss is the only body image issue. I hope you'll do another survey that takes into consideration other forms of body image dissatisfaction and dysmorphia. Social status, more clothing options. More sex, more clothing options, more social acceptance, more enjoyment of myself. I got so much from reading those answers. And in fact, next episode, I'm going to be covering the answers to question number 13, which is if you have ever lost a goal amount of weight, did it help you stop thinking of your body in a critical way or give you peace of mind? So I hope you'll tune in for those answers as well. And now it's time for me to introduce this episode's guest. Today, my guest is Amy Shiner. She's a memoirist, essayist, and feminist. She holds an MFA in creative writing and literature from Stony Brook University and teaches creative writing. Amy hosts a body awareness series on Instagram called What's Your Body's Story, where she posts accounts of people sharing their body's experience. She is currently seeking representation for her memoir, Who I Once Was. Welcome, Amy.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you here. And we met We met actually just a week or two in real yeah, life. Yeah,
1: it feels so long ago. It feels like we've <laughs> known each other forever.
0: I know, I know. It was such a joy to meet you. So I was at um, AWP, which is a writer's conference, and so were you. And after my panel, you came over and introduced yourself. And I feel like we didn't really stop talking. And then every time we saw each other, we're like, bah, 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 Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> which will happen. That happens with me anyway. And then I know just before, before we began recording, you said that that happens with you. Yes. So forget it. The two of us together. So Amy, you are. this is like your space. This is a topic that I know is really near and dear to your heart. And I'm so grateful to have you on The Body Myth and to check in with you about your experience and also to have you as sort of like a voice in my ear about the ways that we can cover these stories and learn and try to help each other. So before we get into the heart of where everything has taken you, when did you first begin, if you can search back in your memory to negatively think about or judge your body?
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm. I just want to say I'm so glad that you're hosting this podcast. It means so much to mm-hmm. me, and I know so many others. You know these experiences. You know, it's 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 obviously it's hard to think that far back. I think probably very young, as early as five or six. But a moment that stands out to me is when I was, I think, seven, and I was in um, dance class. And we were getting ready for the recital, um, which was to Barbie Girl, if anyone remembers that song. Um, it was the 90s. And, you know, they gave us our costumes and it was uh, a crop top and a skirt. And so, you know, I tried it on. I was so excited to be in a dance recital. And then I realized, you know, I was showing my my stomach. And I became very self-aware of um, I was taller than the other girls and I was just bigger at that point. So I really, that was a, a big moment, you know, just looking at the other girls in their costumes. And looking at myself, Um, and I didn't want to dance. You know, I didn't want to perform. I was very self-conscious and very upset. And I told my mom, and um, my mom, um, you know, was very comforting. You know, she said all the right things. You know, it only matters how much fun you're having. You'll look great. You're the best Mm -hmm. dancer out there. I I was definitely not the best dancer out there, but and then she said, "Well, we can we can buy something that will make you feel more comfortable." And basically, what it was was it was kind of like Spanx. Mm. right? That covers you up. So it would cover my stomach and it would like suck me in. And that moment was really symbolic of what was to come in my life. My mom was very much like, let's fix the problem. And I think there's a lot of people now who might look back and judge that uh, about parenting. But I think it's important to keep in mind that in the 90s, there was no talk of health at every size. There's no talk of body Mm -hmm. positivity. She grew up in a world also, you know, if you were not slim, there was a failure. It was a moral failure on your part. Mm -hmm. So she really wanted to do what's best. And she said, okay, if you're uncomfortable, we'll find something to make you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm.
0: So was that like a a one piece that you wore underneath? Yeah, but you know
1: what, I didn't end up wearing it, because that's also very symbolic of what's to come. I was uncomfortable, I was tight, and I was seven years old. So I didn't end up wearing it. And you know, it's it's sad, because I look at the pictures, and I was, you know, not that um, it matters, I guess, in the hindsight, but I was a pretty average-sized kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just taller, and I've never been, you know, very, very slim, even as a child. But at that point, mm-hmm. I was pretty mm-hmm. average. But for some reason, you know, and I think I've, I've talked to a lot of other women, especially in dance class or in gymnastics, mm-hmm. that's where a lot mm-hmm. of that body awareness starts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I, I'm sure there were moments before that, um, but that was the big one that stands out.
0: So in your family, do you have siblings? I do. I
1: have a younger brother.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your family, like what kind of place were you coming from? What was your sort of set point in your family in terms of body? You know, what, what you thought about your body before dance class happened? I mean – had did you do you remember feeling like everything was fine were you as tall as the other people in your family were you you know what i mean were you like on the trajectory that was was expected in your family or did anyone point anything out to you that was of concern
1: Right, so my mom, and I think people um, who are now ex- uh, kind of learning about, you know, children and adults with eating disorders, my mom was always on a diet. At one point before I was born, she was on the Nutrisystem diet, and she mm-hmm. actually had to have her gallbladder removed because the recipes, whatever they made back then, they, they uh, found out that people were having issues. But then about wow. 20 years later, you know, a box of Nutrisystem meals showed up on our porch, mm-hmm. and I said, what is this? My mom said, this is the only thing that works. So there was Mm. this pressure. My mom was very high power. She had a very high power career, and she didn't have time to eat during the day. So, you know, you overeat at night. Mm. And then her father really was a lot of the source of a lot of this. He was very obsessed with thinness, Hmm. and he criticized his wife, my grandmother, he criticized my mother and he would criticize me. No matter what size oh, we were, I... no matter what size we were, it was never thin enough. He
0: would just say that to you when you were little?
1: No. So actually this is, again, my mom told him when I was little, if you ever say anything to Amy, I'll take her away and you'll never see us again. So that was mm. her protection. But as I got older, you know, he died a couple of years ago. He was 98. And one of the last mm. things he said to me was to lose weight. So he was just very, very obsessed. Um, And my grandmother was a model and she Mm. had issues with, you know, I think it's common, especially, you know, after my grandmother had kids and got older, you tend to gain a little weight. I think that's normal for most women, but it was, it really, there was definitely a connection with weight
0: and value. Mm-hmm. And your your own father, do you, where did he stand on this? And and when you heard these, so two questions, where did your father stand on this? And then when you heard this from your grandfather, did you have any kind of reservation, like any kind of security around you, like a little cushion that said, I mean, like emotionally that said, Ah, oh, that's just grandpa? Or were you affected deeply by it?
1: Yeah. So my dad was great in the sense that he he never said a single word my whole life about my size. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really care. You know, that's just not a priority <laughs> to him. It's not something he would notice, to be honest. You know, my grandfather, as I said, he never said it to me until I was older and after my mom passed away. Then it gave him kind of free reign to say mm-hmm. whatever he wanted. And by then I was, you know, I was an adult. I was in recovery. I, I was able to stand on my own two feet. But I knew what he was thinking. And I knew he was saying stuff behind my back. Uh-huh. You kind of pick up on it. And I saw how he talked to my mother. Uh-huh. Um
0: So do you remember a time when you started to internalize those voices? Like when, when did you, because I I know that where we're heading in your story is that you got bariatric surgery at 17. And so I, I'm very curious how you and your family or you or your family made this decision. And, but prior to that, I'm curious when you began to take on this worry or guilt or shame about your body.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where um, I like to bridge, you know, I'm totally loving the body positive movement, the health at every size, but for my story, I'm really trying to bridge there's a mental health aspect. So for me, you know, they started to notice that my weight started to go up around age eight, and I kept gaining weight, and my mom took me to doctors, eventually I was on diets, um, you know, Weight Watchers, LA Weight Loss, all those ones that were popular, Going to nutritionist and my weight kept going up. And as I said, my mom is, you know, I really like to start. I'm glad I started that story with the dance class because my mom is very, let's, you know, very, let's fix it. You know, she's very proactive. Mm-hmm. And what the medical side of things were saying, you know, lose weight, exercise, stop eating this, you know. Whatever. So the reality was that and I looking back, I realize this now that at age eight or nine or 10, there was a lot of stressors in my family. I came from a very volatile family. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of fighting and food is what numbed my mind. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that because I was a child, but food is the binge eating, which is, you know, now a diagnosis included in the um, DSM, you know, that's, that's kind of my coping skill. You know, I didn't have alcohol, I didn't have drugs, but I had food. So that was something I picked up. I never had heard the word binge eating, obviously, until I was in my 20s. So, and no doctor had mentioned it, you know, back then you were either anorexic or bulimic. If you weren't doing either, Mm -hmm. you were just fat. And you had no control, no mm-hmm. self-control. Um, so for me, it really was kind of a childhood of misdiagnosis. And my mom and my parents were very well-meaning, and they were listening to the doctors. You know, mm-hmm. They were worried diabetes does run in my family, and they were very concerned. And my mom knew I wasn't happy. You know, kids who are bigger are not treated well in school or in society Mm -hmm. and I was bullied a lot and I felt like I was missing out on a lot of opportunities. So, you know, how I felt about my body, you know, I felt awful, you know, I I felt very Mm -hmm. disconnected. I really didn't, I liked, I like to say, I didn't know, I wouldn't have known I had a body unless people told me and the way they told me was through criticism. Mm. So Mm -hmm. there was really a big disconnect between my mind and my body. And then, you know, obviously when I was binge eating at the time, my mind shut down. So you could have asked me, you know, what did you just eat? And I wouldn't be able to tell you.
0: Were you secret binging? Um,
1: I think it was secret. I think some of it was secret. My first memory, or I don't know if it was my first memory, it was my first memory of getting caught. Is my mom did catch me and she looked, you know, pretty disgusted of what I was doing. And I honestly didn't realize what I was doing. I think I was 11 or 10, or, you know, something at the time. A lot of it was that. A lot of it is, you know, how kids eat today. You know, you don't really eat breakfast. You don't have time for lunch. You know, so when you get home, you're starving. We don't, I don't believe we have a good culture around food in this country.
0: Right. And you probably, I would imagine, you're saying that your body felt numb and that you really weren't engaged with your body. But I guess, would it be accurate to say that you did feel better or at least soothed when you were eating?
1: Oh, 100%. That's what, Mm -hmm. so I have an anxiety disorder and I'm sure I've had one my whole life. Um, and mm-hmm. that's what really kept my anxiety in check. That was my self medication. But again, yeah. you know, when I went to the doctors they didn't ask and I went to many, many doctors. They didn't ask those questions. They said, Why do you keep gaining weight? You need to diet, you need to, you know, restrict your intake. I went to a nutrition I went to a bunch of nutritionists. One of them I remember she it was the low fat fads, you mm-hmm. know, everything was low fat.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: she taught me how to count calories and, you know, look at the labels and i remember saying to her what happens if food doesn't come in a label in a box she mm-hmm. said we'll just eat foods that come with boxes that come in boxes and now that means like half of the foods, you know, that we're quote unquote supposed to eat, you know, vegetables, fruits, all those natural things, you know, they don't come in boxes. Well, it's
0: also like, you know, I hate the cycle to hear this. It's, it's so hard too, because I see this unfolding and I'm sure, you know, when you look back on it, all this is doing among all the other damage is really helping you hyper focus on your body and the calories and the food, like it's taking any joy, any intuition and this happens to a lot of people out of your experience nourishing yourself.
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. And that's why it's really upsetting when I see uh, children and teens, especially who are being put on diets or going on diets because they're destroying their metabolism, their natural body's function. I mean, the science has proven that um, diet culture is really what's contributing to weight gain in this country because right. we're messing up with our Um, our natural system. So then when we restrict your body's, the next time you eat, your body's gonna say, Oh, I want to hold on to this food, right? I don't know what I'm going to get to eat again. So it's really just very upsetting to see what's happening. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's why, um, you know, I try to practice intuitive eating, which is a, um, for those who don't know, it's very much listening to your body and knowing, uh, you know, when you're hungry, listening to your hunger cues and listening to your full uh, fullness cues. And I never had that. If I had that, it must have been you know, before the age of seven.
0: Right. So you kind of have to start with these really baby steps to try to get back to find it. So so t- how did the decision get made? I mean, who who brought up the idea of bariatric surgery?
1: So I was 16. And at that point, I was, quote, morbidly obese, which is a term for many reasons is not only offensive, it's also a misdiagnosis from what was happening. And, you know, I again, I was dieting, I was getting ready to go to college, and I so desperately wanted to be you know what i considered normal and you know to be fit to be thinner and to mm-hmm. be able to do all the things that i thought um, only thin people could do <laughs> my mom was very close to my childhood pediatrician which at that point i had i switched and he said hey i heard of this study this adolescent study being done at NYU for kids aged ages 13 to 17 and you would undergo bariatric surgery and the one i had it was called the lap band um, and basically what it is, it's a reversible process. So it's not like the others that kind of change your, your um, organs and your stomach. Mm-hmm. There's no cutting. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, it's literally a little circle band that's put around the top portion of your stomach. And you can tighten it and loosen it. And when, if you need it removed, you know, everything goes back to normal. It's nothing permanent. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, you know, it would help you feel fuller faster because the top portion of your stomach is now smaller. Right. Um. Right. And that was the idea and it was completely paid for. And back then it was very expensive. My mom, you know, obviously before she brought it to me, she talked to, we really trusted this doctor. You know, we still trust this doctor. He's a very nice man. And she did research and then she, you know, I just wasn't going anywhere at that point. I was pre-diabetic and that was kind of Were our you? fear. Yeah, it was our fear, you know, mm-hmm. because my mom lived with it. My grandmother lived with it and mm-hmm. my mom didn't want me to live with it. And remember at this time, all we knew is what the medical system was telling us so it seemed like our best bet so when my mom brought it to me you know she didn't say this is something you're doing she said this is something i heard about what do you think and when she said it i immediately was uh, you know i was like yes this is what i need
0: right and it all seemed in pursuit of health i mean obviously when you bring up diabetes as a threat i mean who wouldn't want to try to help their child that way
1: Right. And I think, um, this is something I don't talk about cause I've actually been met with a lot of judgment and a lot of people say, you know, how could your parents do that? How fat were you? All mm-hmm. those questions. And, you know, when you are faced with a decision with a limited amount of information, you know, that's all we had, you do the best choice in the moment. Mm-hmm. You take the best choice. And this was kind of our, um, this was to me was my saving grace. Mm -hmm. I thought I could finally I mean ever since I was very little all I dreamed of was being thin. Mm
0: -hmm. Right because thin meant so much didn't it? I mean you like if you if you had to fill in that like that sentence thin means and I mean even now what like what could you offer a couple of fill in the blanks on that? What does thin mean?
1: even now right then means being accepted Mm -hmm. it means being worthy it means being seen because i used to say the bigger i was the more invisible i was Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um it means having a, a life this this Society in the world is really not set up for people in bigger bodies. If you even think of airplane seats or mm-hmm. um, just anything, um, and it's still really seen as a moral failure if you don't fit a certain body type. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that affects everything. I actually um, was doing some research, and you know, just about kind of the studies with bariatric surgery, and they found that people, even ten years after their bariatric surgery, they still—they found that their self-criticism was similar to before. It's this wow. really core. If you're told at a young age, especially that your weight is equal to your worth, it'll. There's no way, even if you, you know, shrink down to the smallest possible, you'll still have very, very limited self worth.
0: Which is what my working thesis is you know it's not original my whole working thesis you know for this podcast and you know the work around this is just that it it really isn't about our body I mean it is it's only about our body in some ways but it also isn't it's not going to give us what we think we want it's not you know what I mean it's just not a, a goal that you can achieve when you're looking for absolute satisfaction with yourself via your body right so okay so you have the bariatric surgery and can you talk about what happened and the four year period after?
1: Yeah. Um, so it was uh, I was seventeen, so I was just beginning my senior year in high school. Um so it was it was kept secret from everyone. In fact, most mm. of my family still doesn't know.
0: Was there a lot of downtime after that surgery? There was it was, painful? It was mm-hmm. pain
1: yes, it was painful. Um, yeah, I mean it it is um laparoscopic. So it's not mm. it is, you know, as far as surgery goes, it is one of the easier ones, but, you know, it's still surgery. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of downtime. There was, you know, pain, but, and I, you know, obviously stayed out of school for, you know, maybe a week or two, I don't remember. Um, And again, my mom was the super mom and she made sure that no one at that school knew about it because I you know, I wanted to keep it a secret. I didn't, one of the reasons I kept this a secret is because I was trying so hard not to draw attention to my body. So Mm -hmm. if I said I had this surgery, that's going to draw attention, you know, to my body. Right, and then
0: people are going to watch you and like check it out and see how it's going. They just
1: make comments and stuff. So um, it was, you know, there was a recovery time, um, but you know, it was, to me, it was like, this was still a dream come true. This was going to fix my life. So then I went away to college and I had a great time, (laughs) but the issue with this surgery is the side effect of, I don't know about other bariatric, but the side effect of the lap band surgery is if you eat too quickly, if you eat too much, if you eat a, if you go too long without eating and then eat, if you eat certain foods, you will throw up. Um, hmm. So this is different than purging and it's different than, you know, if you have the stomach flu. not to get hmm. graphic, but it's kind of just like, that's how it works and so my doctors had told me this so I thought this was just a natural side effect because the, the issue is is that yes they're changing your stomach but they're not changing your mind they're not changing the way you right. eat you know the pro, so that's why I say the metaphor I always use is if you break your arm you go to the doctor and they put a cast on your leg that's essentially what happened right they're thinking there's a problem with my body here's a device that will help me lose weight but it wasn't with my body, right? It was with my mind. It was just my eating mm-hmm. disorder. But no one said those words. Nobody said eating
0: disorder. I'd also like to add that it's part of, the problem was the culture too, right? right. Like, oh, yeah. I want to, I want to obviously, right? Like, I mean, but when I hear you say that, I have all this, this, this affection for you. And I don't want, you know, I want to just acknowledge that the problem is the culture.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there is this disconnect also with, you know, obviously the mental health and the medical system. Um, so I was, you know, um, I didn't change my, my uh, eating behavior because I didn't know how you know I didn't and I was also eating a lot how my family ate which was you know they're so busy during the day they didn't have time to eat so they ate a lot when they came home and this is just how I knew to eat and then obviously in college I don't think many college kids eat probably healthy you know the dining hall and everything so then um, but I was losing weight and I was losing weight because I was throwing up and uh, not because you wanted to just because no because of the the lap band Yeah, made me so which to me was great, you know, this is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so that happened. And then a few years uh, later, I think I was 23. So if I, uh, you know, six years later, I started having um, a lot of health issues, um, like gas, they basically found I had gastritis, esophagitis and acid reflux.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, imagine, isn't that from vomiting so it is. much? It is. But yeah. you remember,
1: you know, people always say, how did you not know that was a problem? I said, well, my medical team told me this was normal
0: mm-hmm. to throw up.
1: And mm-hmm. I was still, I was young yeah. and all I cared about was, you know, was being thin. So, mm-hmm. um, but that moment really, it hit me. And I just said, wait a second. This was supposed to be my miracle cure. This was supposed to, you know, um, fix my health. I was supposed to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Why am I having all these issues? And then I kind of started to do some self-reflection and some research. And that's when I discovered binge eating disorder, the term. And that really kind of um, was my, you know, awakening moment. And I said, oh, my God, this is what I've been suffering from my whole life. I went mm-hmm. to an outpatient treatment center for binge eating the first time. And it was just, it wasn't a very good treatment center. I mean, I could go on a whole nother mm-hmm. podcast about the mm-hmm. um, eating disorder treatment institutions that are out there and how they've, they're terrible, but well, that'll be another episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, um, you know, I started having, I like to say I went from being completely disconnected to hyper aware. And I was so terrified of going back to to that weight, to that size, to that person I was before, that I started heavily restricting. um, And I started using drugs and self-induced purging because I wanted Mm -hmm. to just lose weight and lose weight and lose weight. That's all I cared about. And that's when I really got very, very ill.
0: So can I, I want to interject here for a moment. When you Because I know we're going to head into this next part. When you were throwing up and you found out you had these medical conditions, the ones before you induced yourself, were you satisfied with your body? Did you look like you thought you wanted to look?
1: I never was satisfied with my body, and I have been at very many, many different sizes and I've never been satisfied.
0: So it wasn't a place to arrive, right? It was like trying to search for, trying to get to it, it, when this happens, when I look this way.
1: Yeah, because I thought I wasn't thin enough. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: So then when I was at my smallest weight, um, while I still was unhappy, people did treat me differently. And I'm saying this, that I've been at different sizes. And when I was smaller, I got treated a lot better than when I Mm -hmm. did when I was bigger. So Whether or not I was happy with my body, I felt that other people were. So then I kind of, um, I like to say that was the year I lost my mind (laughs) because it really is very much like, you know, eating disorders and addiction, substance addiction, they do overlap. So it really was, um, I was in this kind of whirlwind of addiction. Um, And I remember at one moment before I went to treatment, um, you know, I was very, very ill and just very malnourished and you know I was having a lot of issues I remember because I would weigh myself every day and I remember one day I stood on the scale and you know the scale is obviously not reliable I think it, it showed what you know I gained a pound from the day before or whatever and I remember saying I don't care if I die I just want to be thin mm-hmm. and that was really because you know being you know fat represented so much for me it was my horrible childhood it was being ostracized it was the volatile family I came from it was being invisible and I wanted to do anything not to do that to be that again.
0: Did your mom or you know father at this time did anyone express concern? So
1: I was I was living out of the country Mm -hmm. so I think they didn't I I don't know the extent of what they knew Mm -hmm. obviously when I moved back and I told them I was going to treatment you know
0: they knew then.
1: So I think if this is, you know, it, it's something that it was very foreign to them. They didn't understand eating disorders. Most people don't. So it was it was definitely something scary, but I've always been um, very, even in my sickest, I was very proactive about my recovery. I was the one who said, I need help. I need treatment. So, and especially that moment where I said, I don't care if, you know, I die. I just want to be thin. I kind of stood outside of myself and said, oh my God, this is a problem, right? Wow. That's not good. Um, and I was miserable. I was just unhappy with everything. So at that point, I did go back to treatment on the East Coast with a different diagnosis at this point. This treatment center, which, you know, as I said, the ones I, the first few I went to were very poor. You mm-hmm. know, you actually come back sicker than you,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: go because you learn new stuff from other, other patients or other clients. They were just so overwhelmed with clients and had a very uh, few staff that you really could get away with anything. I mean, it wasn't helpful at all.
0: Hmm. Had you sent yourself to that one? Yeah. So your parents hadn't said, "Okay, we're we're asking you to go away and get better." You you put yourself there. No,
1: yeah. because I you know I, it's really uh, um, hard. And now that my mom's passed away, I can't. You know, she was the one I was close You know, was most involved with my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's I can't ask her. I mean, she knew something was up. She knew there was mm-hmm. a problem. I don't think she knew how to help at this point, right? Mm-hmm. I was also you know in my early twenties, so I'm not a child. You can't send me somewhere, you know, <laughs> but I I knew I wanted help. I was very unhappy and very unhealthy, um, you know, and I just, even though it was kind of that point, they talk about the different phases. It's like, I know I, I know I have a problem and I don't want to change. Is kind of one of the, the the, phases. Like I know I have a problem. I want to stop this, but that, I also don't want to gain weight. Right. That's part of the um, exactly. step. Exactly. So I went to this treatment center and I went to residential and then I went to day treatment And the therapists were honestly terrible. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, they're like, oh, we don't know what to do with you. And at that point, I I was a very unusual client in that I had a surgery and I was restricting and and purging. Mm -hmm. So they really didn't know what to do with me because Mm -hmm. I had my doctor write a note saying, well, she can't eat above X calories. Mm -hmm. And the calorie amount she gave me was not enough to sustain life. So they were feeding me basically a child's portion. Mm. And which I wanted because I wanted to, you know, be smaller. So you
0: wanted to get better, but you weren't prepared to do whatever it took.
1: And that's kind of the, they say the different stages of recovery. So that Mm -hmm. was, I was early on. Mm. But the fact that this treatment center, you know, and they also didn't do blind weights, which means when they weighed you, you could see your weight, which is totally something that should not be allowed. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were not helpful. And then um, when I was in residential, all these girls or these women were talking about this book they were reading. And it was called The Eight Keys to Recovering from an Eating Disorder. And I read it and it was this newish, at the time newish, I think, treatment program on the West Coast. And I said, this is what I need. This is what makes sense. They had a philosophy of, you know, kind of saying this is a mental illness, right? With Mm -hmm. a physical, at times, a physical ramification. Most people in treatment centers are at a, you know, quote, average BMI or above. It's Mm -hmm. not the emaciated 13 year old anymore right and there's Mm -hmm. people of color people there's men you know this really affects everyone in in the country um so I read this book and you know again my mom she was very confused what was going on but I said I know, I know I'm really sick and this is what I need. And she did everything to help me to get me out there to mm-hmm. the West coast. So I went to Oregon cause that was one of their treatment centers. And this was very different than any treatment center I've been to, you know, before I was with 70 clients. Now there was seven mm-hmm. and they had very highly skilled therapists and I got better there. That's really what saved my life because, um, you know, I really took the time to discover how did I get to this place? How did mm-hmm. I get to this place? What happened in my childhood? What happened in my family? And the, the therapists really were almost like, it was almost like a surrogate family there. They really were invested in my recovery and they believed in me when mm-hmm. I couldn't believe in myself. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the fortunate ones because the recovery rate for eating disorders is pretty low.
0: Really? Do you know offhand
1: Yeah, I mean, I've known people um, actually who've died in their early 20s from eating disorders. Um, Mm -hmm. It's before it had the highest mortality rate of mental illness. Now I think that substance abuse is included in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual. It might have been second, but for years Mm -hmm. it was the highest mortality rate.
0: And how long did you stay there in Oregon?
1: Well, in the treatment center, I was there for four months, and then I ended up living there for three years. Um, Yeah, so, because they had, you know, a community there, and after, even after I graduated from treatment, Um, but it really, it really was an awakening where I realized, you know, this is what happened in my childhood, and I know that. Um, I'm not saying everyone, but I'm I'm sure that many people who've received bariatric surgery have this underlying eating disorder, underlying mental health issue that's not being addressed.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know what the statistics are about bariatric surgery these days and how long-lasting those results are and how people do. But I, I guess no matter what your course of action is, if you're not addressing the mental health aspects, the emotional aspects, it's probably not going to be something that lasts or is even – easy to do.
1: Right. And I actually looked up one of the statistics for um, the lap band surgery. They found that after 12 months, people started gaining weight back. At the highest point that they were giving lap bands was 2008. They they gave over 35,000 surgeries. And now by 2014, they were only giving 5,000 surgeries. And now they barely use the lap band because Mm. people were regaining weight or they needed a new surgery and or caused health issues.
0: Sure. I mean, it's, it, I, I just feel like there are no shortcuts. There's always some type of, uh, unfortunately, right? Because you have to do the work, right? It, it's like, it's not a patient or a person's fault, what happened in their family, but then they have to go and kind of dismantle everything and figure it out to get better. It's all this extra work we have to do to heal that wasn't our fault in the first place. But if we don't take advantage, you know, if we don't avail ourselves of therapists and treatment facilities and kind of changing our mindset and really doing hard work, it's it's going to be difficult to get out from under.
1: Right. And, and one of my big, um, you know, the, my goals for my story is to show that it is not an individual's fault, right? This is a disconnect between the mental health and the medical system. The diet industry makes billions of dollars every year. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, we're not, you know, there's so much blame on the individual. Why are you this size? Why can't you control yourself? Well, mm-hmm. it's not, that's, it's not the individual's fault. And it, it really is a societal issue. And that, you know, this was, this was kind of, you know, going back to my story was, I was misdiagnosed mm-hmm. as being quote unquote obese, which is a term I really hope to destroy because it just represents so much um, that's wrong and inaccurate.
0: You mean like the idea, the the definition of obese, and the way we treat people who are labeled obese?
1: Yes, I mean there's so okay. many factors. Well, first of all, bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Some people might have underlying medical issues that cause them to gain weight. Some may be like me, which I suspect a lot of people, and they use food as a as a coping skill. I think that's very common. They've been doing, you know, it's so new that they're starting to do studies of binge eating disorder and found that. Um, I I forgot the number, but it was a pretty high amount. And it it really does affect men a lot, too, who never get treatment. Um, And it's still, you know, it just doesn't make sense. If this is a mental illness, why are we saying, you know, you need to diet and exercise, Uh right, instead of fixing the underlying issue?
0: Yeah, and it's like it manifests in this way that is so public because it's really hard to hide how we look. Uh, even when we want to and so it it manifests in this way that people feel in this culture they have a right to criticize right
1: and that's actually the my um, best friend who I also met um, in treatment we kind of joke that this is the last frontier right you wouldn't go up to someone uh, who's in a wheelchair you know sorry to be crass and be like why are you in a wheelchair what's wrong with you right but Mm -hmm. you go up to someone and say why are you fat why can't you lose weight you should eat like this you should do this um and it's still the last frontier of what people think they can comment on but the reality is and what i find is the core in um you know the health at every size body neutrality all those movements is no one should comment on your body it's none Mm -hmm. of their business you know Mm -hmm. they're not doing it for your best interest they're not saying i'm giving you i'm telling you you're fat because i care that's not that's not the reality
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. It's just all part of this desire in people to kind of corral and judge other people and sort of make them conform. And and really it you're really right about that because I do think that people have such stigma such stigma about weight and body size and that and I don't know how long it's been in our culture, or in many cultures, that the way that if someone is bigger, living in a bigger body, that that is on them, and that it means necessarily that that you can basically draw these conclusions about their mo and how they live and the decisions they make, and there's just such a such a set of values we put on it.
1: And again, if you want to mm-hmm. look at. How the size of Americans, will say has increased, right? since the post-war era. Well, that's conveniently when the diet industry really started advertising on TV. They really started convincing women to be unhappy with their bodies, specifically women, but men as well, and all genders. And they there's just unregulated, you know food, they just found there's a lot of money. In diet culture. And again, we've already established that once you start messing with your, your food and your metabolism, it's your body's going to hold on to that weight, to that food that it's missing Mm -hmm. out on, especially at a young age when you're still growing. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know how many teenage girls I know that are so unhappy with their bodies, no matter what size they are.
0: Mhm. Yep. And and I and again like the answer is not in the body. I mean the answer is in the body because if we can reclaim our intuition and and our sense of peace but it's not in the way we look. It's just never going to be that way. So so how do you live your life with your body now?
1: Um you know I <laughs> I still go to therapy and I have a dietitian and I'm in recovery. Um and you know the you know it's, some days are hard. Some days especially with body image they're hard. You know that's it's been a very ingrained Um, Thought process, you know, thought in my head that, you know, this is what um, worthy looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really try to focus on all the things my body can do. And the fact that honestly, I'm, you know, healthy, you know, from what has happened. In my whole life with everything I've, I have have done to my body, my eating disorder had done, um, I really feel fortunate um, because it didn't work out for a lot of women because I, I went to treatment with, with uh, mostly women. it ha- Some of them have severe, severe issues if they're even alive. So mm-hmm. I really am fortunate and I really feel like, um, you know, my story is it's one of many but not spoken by a lot. And so I'm really mm-hmm. hoping to bring – my story out to the public, and because I think that it, it, I think a lot of people will identify with it.
0: Mm hmm. For sure. And do you do you have any long lasting consequences of of the years that you went through all this or do you feel like your body is more in balance now?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I was um, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease um, year, a few years ago, but it was also six months after my mom died suddenly, which they mm. do say it is a trauma induced disease. But they're mm-hmm. also finding, you know, because in the past, autoimmune has really been um, they find it more and older older um, folks Mm -hmm. but they're finding that there is a connection with eating disorders and autoimmune and they're finding more young women are being diagnosed Um, Mm -hmm. because it's basically an autoimmune is your body kind of attacking itself and if you spend Mm -hmm. so many years attacking your body you know this is what it learns to do so but besides that you know I'm very lucky as I said you know health wise um, because I've could have had permanent effect you know long-lasting effects um, and I've recovered a lot because I'm very focused on my recovery. And even if there are days I'm not, you know, happy with my body or having issues with food, you know, I, my health is my most important part. You know, I will always Uh focus on health. Mm
0: -hmm. And what kind of resources do you lean on um, during a day or a week when things aren't so good?
1: Yeah. So I have friends, my closest friends know about my story. And I really think um, one of my gifts, you know, when people, ask me why I was able to you know be in recovery because so many people can it's because it, I really had a strong community and I mm-hmm. think having a community of people who are um who really understand what you're going through is like that's the best treatment mm-hmm. um so I do have the community as I said I do see a therapist and a dietitian. I rely on them and I rely on honestly my own experience you know I I have these memories of being, you know, 24 and being very, very ill and, you know, purging and restricting and uh, just remembering how miserable I was. Even if I think, you know, oh man, my body was so much better back then. I was Mm -hmm. so miserable. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to return to that.
0: And do you, do you foresee a time, do you think it's possible to have a time when you don't think about your body that much?
1: Yeah. So one of the reasons I, chose to go out west to this program was because they're one of the few um, places that has a philosophy of being recovered. So, you know, when you talk about people with alcoholism, they say, oh, you're once an addict, you're always an addict, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their philosophy, because eating disorders are a process addiction, not a substance addiction, um, you know, meaning, you know, substance addictions with alcohol, you're physiologically addicted to the substance mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. versus
1: process addictions. You're not addicted to the food or addicted to not eating You're addicted to the process of, you know, kind of the rich Ritual of binging or the ritual of restricting or the ritual of purging or whatever um, and they really believe that you could be recovered that you can go there's a mm-hmm. point in your life where this will not be an issue so I that's really what sold me because um, I was like if I have to live with this the rest of my life you know mm-hmm. why is it why is it worth it but I have met people who are recovered and it took years and a lot of hard work but they're comfortable with their body they are comfortable with their food and what they eat and they have they have gotten there
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's like strength in numbers too. I feel like it's inspiring to exchange this information and not live it in secret or in shame. Kind of let it see the light, right? And and know that you're not alone.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So, what advice would you want to share with young women coming up these days about their bodies?
1: Um, well, my first is that no one should comment on your body. I don't care if they're family. If they're strangers, there's just, that's not right. They have no right to comment on your body and the size of what it looks like. Um, And to remember that bodies do come in all shapes and sizes and your body is going to change. Your body in five years from now will not be the body you have now. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Bodies change and hormones change and, you know, all different things affect that. Um, But I really would love to stress to young people who are struggling that this is, you don't have to be secretive about it because it affects, I mean, every single woman I've met has had been on some, has had some unhappiness with her body or some disordered eating or something. Like, it's so common and it, it really should stop being a secret because, you know, we had a saying in treatment, there were a lot of sayings and one of them was secrets keep you sick, right? You know, I know it's a very secretive thing, but hopefully you realize that you're not alone. It's, it, it's hard to believe now, but your body is really okay as it is. Like, it's mm-hmm. really... It is your body, It, no matter what it looks like, it is fine and it's yours to to be in for your life and it can do so many things um, mm-hmm. and to kind of focus on that.
0: Thank you for that. So w- where can people find you? Where can they find your Instagram series and contribute?
1: Sure. Well, my website is amyshiner.com and that's A-M-Y-S-C-H-E. E I N E R.com. Um, and that's where I, I post, um, you know, my writing and just ways to contact me. And I am doing an Instagram series um, that you said in the beginning. It's What's Your Body Story. And I'm just trying to promote anyone who wants to share their body story. It doesn't have to be about weight. It's just, you know, if your body could speak, what would it say? And so that's on my Instagram, which is bodies underscore talks underscore stories, so it might be a little confusing, maybe we can put it in the notes, but um, it's, and you can reach out to me, it's just something to share, um, and I'm just hoping to gain awareness, and I'm hoping that my memoir is forthcoming, I'm still meeting with agents, so if there are any agents listening, um, <laughs> you can, you can contact me, um, but this, my memoir does pretty much discuss everything we just talked about.
0: hmm Amy, thank you so much for, for sharing this story and for your honesty and, and for really shining a light on what you've been through. And I feel so grateful that you're here and that you're in recovery and that you're doing this work.
1: Thank you so much, Ronit. I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so honored that you have created this podcast. And I know it's going to change so many people's lives.
0: Thank you for tuning into The Body Myth. If you'd like updates, want to complete the Your Body in the World survey, or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air, please visit the link in the show notes, or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find The Body Myth. Thank you so much for being here.